is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. In recent episodes, we've had Josh talk about the killing of Cassie Jo Stoddard and his Scream-inspired Patreon mini, then Emily's stories of catfishing gone wrong in our episode Plenty of Catfish. I wasn't searching for a similar story, but I stumbled upon one that eerily resembles a mashup of both of those cases. This is the story of the murder of Cynthia C.C. Hoffman and the alleged catfish that orchestrated her killing. The other day, the show received a message from a listener. She was letting us know we had delivered some disturbing news to her. Here, I'll read what she sent in regards to our episode, A Waking Nightmare, about the killing of Matthew Choi. Today I was listening to your episode, A Waking Nightmare. I was only partially listening until you said Alan Coe's name, because that's a name I know. I met him on Tinder. Ugh, I know. (gasps) And we had a one-off night, but I never talked to him again because when I went to the bathroom, I snooped and the entire cabinet was full of makeup and shit. This was probably June or July of 2020. I wasn't certain it was him until you mentioned the marijuana movement because he had said those exact words to me. Then everything fell into place. This is such a random wild thing and I'm honestly still spinning and have definitely soothed my anxiety with weed, but I feel like I should let you guys know that because of you... I now know I slept with someone who was capable of a brutal murder a few short months later. He also messaged me a few months later to ask me back, so I went and checked the date on those, and he had sent them, those messages, after his murder of Matthew, as well as after his arrest. I wish I could explain the feeling I had when I found out. The horror and anxiety were next level. My brain basically melted, lol. Oh my god. The case was awful. I remember hearing about it, but I'm the worst about following the news, so I never saw that they'd caught Matthew's murderer. He, Alan, was living in the same apartments when I went over. I'm so glad I listened to my gut and blocked him afterwards, and that I told him to fuck off when he messaged me that November. You always hear the statistics about how many murderers you walk by without knowing it, but it's always a naive bliss of not knowing that they've actually brutally murdered an innocent person. Also loved the fact that he wasn't actually working at Intel like he told me. Hearing how he was arrested was heartbreaking, to be honest. Wow. So she had no idea that some Tinder hookup ended up being a murderer. This must be a Facebook message. yeah. Instagram, yeah. Oh, I don't read those. So that, oh my goodness. Yeah, so I can't imagine, I... That kind of goes in our warnings, <laughs> not to scare everyone away from dating, but we have been talking about some ways to stay safe. And I guess this is just an example of not so much to not do things, but just trust your gut, trusting your gut, you know, being careful about whose homes you go to after a short amount of time of knowing them, things like that, because I'm so you never sorry know that we that we shocked. Her I know like that's that, what though. I told her. I was like, I'm so sorry that we were the ones to deliver that news to you. <laughs> That lines up. That lines up with us. Yeah. 
So besides all of our warnings about online dating, you can add the fear of finding out you've hooked up with a killer or future killer to the possibilities dating brings. Thanks again for sharing your story. We're glad you got home safe and appreciate the warning for others. When talking about catfish, we usually think of the type of people we see on the TV show of the same name. Someone uses a picture of someone else, usually a model, and starts a romantic relationship with an unsuspecting victim. Sometimes the deception is based in self-esteem. Sometimes there are more iniquitous purposes for the engagement, like what we've seen in the new documentary, The Tinder Swindler. Lure the mark in, get them to care about you, tell them to send you money for rent, kids, whatever, and keep stringing them along. But as we've talked about in Emily's episode, the catfishing can turn into blackmail via sextortion. In 2021, the FBI reported a rise in the crime with $8 million in reported losses. And that's only what's reported. Imagine the probable thousands of people who have paid, like my friend who was tangled up in a sextortion plot, a small amount, maybe only $100 or so, and they were too embarrassed to report it. But that could also go for millionaires. The murders committed by online boyfriends isn't the only kind of violence that can come from the internet, especially when teenagers are allowed to roam free in lawless, anonymous cyberspace. Desires to show off, feel loved, and even earn money can lead not fully developed brains down a dark path. It was June of 2019 in Eastern Anchorage, home to the Hoffman family. 19-year-old Cynthia Hoffman, or Cece as her friends and family called her, was excited to go to the mall. The trailer the family occupied was a full one. As the third oldest of seven kids, Cece was surrounded by siblings and children of other family members, along with a bird and her stepmother, making for a busy, blended home. A home that struggled with multiple disabilities and loss. Cece's baby brother, Timothy Jr., living less than a year after being born in 2003. Graduating in 2018, Cece was attending an ACE-ACT program. Academics didn't come easily for her as she struggled with a learning disability, leaving her with the cognitive abilities of a 12-year-old. It hindered her ability to do book work, but not to live a full, happy, loving life. She, like her dad Timothy, was a hard worker. Enjoying a restaurant job, it was the work she got to do as her dad's helper that she loved the most. It was that work, helping her dad prep a camper for an outing, that had earned her money she was desperately wanting to spend at the mall. Before going shopping, one of her favorite activities, she had to meet up with one of her sisters who had the money their father was giving them for the help. But Cece never picked it up. After the first few hours, Timothy, Cece's dad, felt that something was wrong. Cece was responsible and knew better than to mess with her father, a father who had made sure all the children had phones provided with one rule. No matter what you are doing or where you are, if dad is calling, you pick it up. He didn't care if you were in a movie or church, you answered his calls. And when his calls went unanswered that first day, his concerns only worsened. On the morning of the 3rd, with no answer or sign of Cece, a missing persons report was filed with local police. Desperate, Timothy was arranging search parties. He called friends and family. Taking his motorcycle out, he searched back roads and paths. He called the news stations. He informed the police. Even with a missing persons report, her status as a 19-year-old adult caused, in some opinions, the police to not take her disappearance seriously. Of course, it was found out later that Timothy's report to police hadn't included his heightened concern due to her cognitive delays. 
He was well aware that those with disabilities are so often taken advantage of. Police apologized later, saying they would have taken the report more seriously if that information had been included in their paperwork like the father had intended. Insert internal screaming here. When Monday rolled around, Timothy knew things were dire, even telling reporters that by then, he knew it was just a matter of time before officers would be knocking at his door, there to deliver bad news. The only saving grace in this scenario, Timothy didn't have to wait long for that knock. It came just four days after Cece had disappeared. Tuesday evening, officers arrived. Before they could sit Timothy down, he knew, asking them, she's dead, isn't she? Even if Timothy's instincts knew the status of his daughter's life, he couldn't have imagined how the officers had found her. The night of the 3rd, detectives arrived at the home of Nicole House and her teenage daughter, Denali Bremer. Nicole wanted to talk to the police because of what Denali and her friend Anthony told her the night before. Repeating the story, officers learned the teens confessed to shooting Cece in the head and pushing her into a body of water. The next day, police spoke with Denali. Once read her rights, 18-year-old Denali told police everything. She and her friend, Caden McIntosh, the same boy known as Anthony, were with Cece. Attending the same high school, Cece and Denali had become best friends. The day of the second, Cece encountered her friends on her way to her sister's. After she got in their car, they drove out to an area known as the Valley, where they hung out, smoking pot, before deciding to start a 35-mile drive south to Anchorage. About 10 miles into their journey, the group stopped in Chujiak to view the 200-foot Thunderbird Falls. The trail was an easy one, only a mile long and less than a 100-foot gain. Wandering into the woods, the teens decided to play a game. Taking out a Celtic 9mm gun and duct tape, all three agreed to be bound by the tape for a photo shoot. Cece was first. As her ankles and wrists were wrapped, Cece went along with the game. It was when the tape was placed on her mouth and wrapped around her head, she started to panic. Denali and Caden took the tape off of her head, mouth, and wrists, but that didn't help. Cece started to yell that she was going to call the police. She was going to tell them Denali and Caden had kidnapped and sexually assaulted her. For whatever reason, Denali had a gun in her hand, which 16-year-old Caden grabbed away from her and, in a panic to protect himself from trouble, pointed it at Cece's head and pulled the trigger. With Cece lying on the ground, there was still a concern she could be calling the police, so he pushed her body into the water. Apparently unfazed by the killing, the pair went back to the car in the parking lot. Getting his alibi in place, Caden told Denali to text one of Cece's sisters, explaining they had given her a ride but dropped her off. Out of fear for her own life after seeing what Caden was capable of, Denali went along with him even joining as they drove away from Chujiak before stopping at a good spot to start a burn pile. In the flames, he threw in some of Cece's clothes, her purse, ID, and even the murder weapon. The next day, they put out a false report of having seen Cece at a park. Questioning the presumed killer separately from Denali, Caden agreed with her story. They all met up, smoked weed in the valley, stopped at the falls, agreed to take the photos taped up, but in Caden's case, he didn't have a reason for the shooting. The 16-year-old had just blacked out, but did remember firing the gun. He also remembered that she was still twitching as he pushed her into the water, 
leaving him wondering aloud if the bullet or water were her final cause of death. After the murder, they destroyed the evidence. That's horrible. How do you live with yourself after that? Especially when you're a child and you have a lot of oh life ahead of you. Oh, God. Just the standing there wondering. Yeah. Armed with a confession and location, detectives went to the water, and just like the two teens had claimed, the body of Cynthia Huffman was found, her ankles still bound by the gray tape. After learning of his daughter's death, Timothy wasn't shocked by her murder, but as to who confessed to being involved. Timothy knew who Denali was, only he knew her as her daughter's friend, Angel. Not only had she been over to the house to hang out with and even have slumber parties with Cece, since the disappearance, she had been texting Timothy. Some of the messages read, Is she okay? I hope she comes home safely. She's my best friend. I'm starting to get worried. I love her too. I want the best for her and I want her to come back. She won't answer me. I think she's ignoring everyone. I know she will come home safe. How heart-wrenching after learning she contributed to have the audacity that takes it to such a an uglier place. It's hurtful. Yeah. It it's like those killers that taunt the family years later. It's just really really hurtful. Like there's no need to do that. She's clearly trying to cover up her tracks. Exactly. I know optimistically I want to think, "Oh, she's young and maybe she's writing him what she really no, wishes." No. You just know better. But you know better when it comes to that. Yeah. How devastating to not only have your daughter's friend be blamed for her death, but there was something extra alarming about Denali texting Timothy, knowing she had watched her body be dumped, feigning concern, giving false support. Timothy had taken issue with the idea that his daughter would go with her friends to smoke pot. He proudly admitted to being an overbearing and strict parent, so he couldn't believe that she would do that. But I'm sure we can all imagine a teenager who just wants to be loved, doing what it takes for positive attention. Denali and Caden's confessions and the recovery of Cece led to their being arrested and charged with her murder. But very quickly, something changed after Caden was behind bars. He started telling his story to anyone with an earshot, only now it was different from what he had been telling detectives. Everything was the same, except that shooting Cece was Denali's idea, and she had actually pulled the trigger. Mm. Denali's story changed, too. In fact, she had been holding the gun, and then she told Caden to shoot Cece. To support their new tales, there were Snapchat videos. Denali had sent the videos to a friend who turned them over to police. In the first, Denali repeats the story she started with. Everyone panicked. She was scared for her life. Caden killed Cece. In the second video, Caden is in the background. Denali is talking to the camera, saying... I just want to thank everyone that's been there for me my whole life and these past few years and everything. I fucked up. I know I did. If I could take back what I've done, I can't. I'm sorry, everybody, my family, my friends. I guess you will hear from me when you hear from me, but I won't be back for a long time. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do it. I didn't mean to do it. Showing Denali the video that appeared to be a confession, she spilled. Taking Cece into the woods had actually been planned. The pair had told her they were just going for a hike, but Denali brought the gun as the plan all along was to murder Cece. Once in the moment, Denali freaked out and gave the gun to Caden, asking him to finish the job she couldn't. Just a week after going missing, Cece's body had been recovered, 
her murderers were arrested, and confessions were made. The following Sunday, a third teenager was arrested. This time it was Caleb Leyland, a 19-year-old. While Denali and Caden had been friends for about six months, the relationship with Caleb was more unclear, except that it was newer. Caleb wasn't part of the shooting, but he had provided Denali and Caden with a vehicle, knowing what their plan was with Cece. So did they say why? Why they made this plan? Oh. Oh. Let's find We're out gonna why. We're going to find out. That same Sunday, two more teens were arrested, but due to their young age, their names and involvement have not been released. When all was said and done, five teenagers were arrested and charged with first-degree murder and first-degree conspiracy to commit murder. It was becoming clear that all five were involved in a plot to kill Cece. It just wasn't clear why. Enter Darren Schillmiller. 3,880 miles away in Salisbury, Indiana, 21-year-old Darren was living with an older relative in their single-story home on two acres in the rural area. Darren had graduated from North Harrison High School in 2017. Schoolmates recalled memorable aspects about Darren, not that they were positive. He was a shy kid, which led to a lot of bullying. Overall, he was nice, but there was another part of his character that was recalled. Darren was a creep. As a school-aged boy, he would hound female friends and classmates for pictures of them in bikinis. Ew. Those requests rebuffed, he would go so far as to make fake profiles on social media in an effort to obtain photos. Do you not know how to use Google, sir? There must be something about the Knowing personal who it connection. Is. Ugh. Yeah. Yuck. If that's yuck. Oh boy. As Darren got older, the rumors of his proclivities were a well-known secret in his small farming town. Out of school, he would message friends that now had babies of their own and ask for pictures of the children. Ew. Again, he would use those fake profiles to try to lure unsuspecting friends. Manipulating emotions, he would sometimes message an acquaintance that he desperately needed to tell them a secret. Once the conversation was engaged, he would then say that he wouldn't talk until he got pictures of the person's baby getting a diaper change, oh, including photos my. of the used diaper. I am so disturbed right now did they say if anyone fell for that to hear his secret it sounds like people didn't i certainly i i cannot say for sure but i didn't i can say i didn't see any report of people following through oh my god that is that it was more so like oh darren oh my god as shocking as all of that was, the community attributed Darren's behavior to naivete or perhaps him just being a little slow, as they said. Dismissing what were clearly gigantic bright red flags, no one informed the police, so his behaviors continued. The offensive profiles were simply blocked by the women he was harassing. That's just disrespectful to people who are slow. Exactly. Like, just because you don't have the same mental capacity what a good point. doesn't mean you are a pervert uh-huh oh like, that is just horrible yeah you're you're into weird stuff and you're asking for like child photos oh you must have like a mental disability yeah that's or be horrific yeah. like why not we um why don't we just sit down and unpack why he is asking for these exactly things? that's Yikes. a very good point thank you for mentioning that because yeah it is not one in the same it's not you have a developmental delay therefore you are perverted or yeah are going to harass you your friends interested in that I mean, yeah. maybe somebody is, but come on. Yeah. You're just making excuses. And for on his the behavior. flip side of that, 
Just because someone has a cognitive delay does not mean they should not be reported for inappropriate behaviors. That is true as well. Leash, I'm in a real pickle. Oh no, what's up? Well, now that I've cut caffeine from my life, I'm wanting to try new coffees. But I'm specifically looking for something with small batch roasting that's woman-owned and has a paranormal theme. Wow, that is incredibly specific. But you won't believe this. I know of a coffee that fits all of those needs and is owned by Portlanders. It's Sinister Coffee and Creamery. Coffee and Creamery? That's right. Throughout the year, the ladies at Sinister Coffee and Creamery work to make creative, spooky, and delicious coffee. And from April to November, they make small batch, rolled, and Philadelphia-style ice cream, which they serve at the PSU Farmer's Market every Saturday. I love this decaf coffee. Its flavor is so robust, it's hard to believe it was decaf. Not only do I love the taste, but the adorable Ouija planchette-inspired packaging and clever names like premonition, apparition, and relic. So mark your calendars for the PSU Farmer's Market in April, where we just might show up to scoop. To get your hands on their delicious coffee, you can follow them on IG at SinisterCMC and visit SinisterCoffeeAndCreamery.com. When you order, use code MIR10 for 10% off. That's SinisterCoffeeAndCreamery.com with code MIR10 for 10% off. In 2018, Darren had been reaching out to women outside of Indiana. Contacting a woman in California, he made his usual request, photos of her infant children and their dirty diapers. Harrison County, where Darren resided, received the complaint and looked into Darren regarding child pornography. Nothing was found, no actions were taken, and the case was closed. That's when Denali, who used her nickname of Angel, came across Darren. But for the 18-year-old, Darren in Indiana was actually Tyler in Kansas. The two had met each other online a few months before Cynthia's murder. The indictment doesn't show who contacted who first, but the pair struck up a conversation, Tyler even sending photos of himself. Denali didn't know that they weren't pictures of Darren or that she was being catfished. As the conversations went on, Tyler shared he was actually a millionaire. Darren might have been using a different name and face, but his depravity was the same. Somehow initiating one of those conversations I obsess about, because how do you meet someone and just get to the point of, so are you into rape and murder? They had that conversation and a plan was made. Tyler was willing to pay Denali $9 million if she would rape and murder a girl and send him pictures and videos of the attack. Oh my God. In May or June of 2019, Denali agreed to the exchange of money for a life, but decided she would need help. That's when she arranged a meeting with Caden, Caleb, and the two other minors with herself. It was decided then that her best friend Cynthia, due to her desperate desire to have friends combined with the naive innocence her developmental delay generated, made her the perfect victim. It was all set. Caleb would provide his SUV, Caden and Denali would take her to the park and duct tape her before shooting her. Again, the other two juveniles' involvement is unknown. Before speaking with police, Denali deleted all of her conversations with Tyler. But after confiscating her phone, police were shocked and horrified to find recorded child sex abuse, not even hidden away. 
the easily accessible images initiated a deeper dive into her phone. There they found Tyler. Even though conversations were gone, investigators were able to recover enough to show the two had been sharing fantasies about raping and murdering a girl, and had made the deal for the $9 million. Not only had Denali followed up on the murder itself, she kept her part of the deal, sending photos and videos of the murder to Tyler as it was happening. Interviewing the other suspects, they admitted to knowing about Denali's relationship with Tyler and that he had hired her to kill. Agreeing on the roles they would all play, they had agreed to a share of the money, Caleb expecting half a million for his providing of the car. Searching for Tyler, detectives found Darren in Indiana. Marshals arrested him and charged him with murder as well. Being interviewed, he shared it all. He and Angel had been talking for about three weeks about raping and murdering someone before settling on murder. He confessed he knew Cece was Angel's best friend. He told them he had been sent photos and videos on Snapchat of the attack and of Cece's body. He had, in fact, catfished Denali, lying about being rich. He also admitted that, using the photos from the murder, he attempted to blackmail Angel into raping another girl. I'm assuming that because Denali was questioned so soon after the murder, he didn't have time to really go after that part. When Denali learned who Tyler really was, she wrote him saying, I wish I never made a deal with you in the first place. We can meet, but once I see a cop, I'm telling him or her that I made you rape people and kill Cece. By then, Darren was arrested, but not for the murder, for the recorded child sex abuse he was in possession of, the child sex abuse that had been found on Denali's phone. What officers had found was photos and videos of Denali engaging in sexual behaviors with an 8, 9, and 15-year-old. Images she then sent to Tyler. By the time all of the pieces were put together, the charges for the six parties involved were staggering. Four counts of tampering with physical evidence for Caden after he burned Cece's belongings, Denali facing one count of the same. Darren and Denali, a charge of solicitation to commit murder, Darren for the payout, Denali for the gathering of her friends. Two counts of murder in the second degree for all six defendants, along with conspiracy to commit murder in the first degree and first degree murder and federal recorded child sex abuse charges. That last one alone could earn them 80 years. Indicted by a grand jury, it was time for the defendants to appear in court. Timothy, Cece's father, has never missed a moment. He wants to be there to get the justice his daughter deserved. He had been an overprotective parent, but even that hadn't been enough to keep his daughter safe. So now he has to make sure her killers know what they have taken from him. When messages between Angel and Tyler came out, some showed Angel talking about going out to buy pot to make sure Cece was high first. That way she wouldn't fight back during the attack. Even if Timothy was wrong and Cece had cracked under the peer pressure, getting her high wasn't something fun for friends to do. It was to make her murder easier on them. In her first court appearance, an emotionless Denali confessed to knowing what she did was wrong. In August 2019, Darren pled not guilty to the recorded child sex abuse and murder charges. His plea is the only one currently available. As the other defendants await trial, we can only assume that means they pled not guilty. There have been bumps in trial dates due to COVID and delay of discovery. While this isn't unsolved, we don't have closure or answers. All statements regarding self-incrimination were in police documents from interviews with suspects, so this case is in a bit of a limbo. It seems pretty obvious, given the evidence and conversations that have been made public, that they have the right people behind bars. 
But these remain allegations and those named are innocent until proven guilty. Once a trial or I would guess maybe a plea deal takes place, we will update you. That is a horrific case. That is my nightmare fuel right there. Yeah. That has all the components of just a parent's worst nightmare. Across the board. It's so sad, so chilling, and it makes you feel hopeless that these kids can change how they think. It's concerning to think about what their lives are, that at such young ages, they're not seeing the issue with that, which I know is common. We've talked about, you know, when you're a teenager, your brain doesn't know what mortality is. Mm. You know, your brain doesn't, you know, you struggle when you've got a group of friends trying to talk you into something. You struggle, but murder is different. I think we can also take from it the lesson that we should be talking to kids about money. Yeah. Because I mean, this sounds like a group of kids that money literally is everything, Mm -hmm. and it's not, especially having grown up as someone who didn't have it. I had just as happy of a childhood. Mm -hmm. I grew, I don't think it's that important. Yes, having a certain amount makes life a little easier, but to think you'd be willing to do that. And you could attribute that possibly, given their age and that this was just uh, a couple years ago. I'm curious what level social media had on that. You know, if you're just a kid and maybe um, a less glamorous part of Alaska, yeah, you're Mm. seeing people just hop on their boats and hop on their who's to say we're not going to know till somebody's doing studies on that, Mm -hmm. and then you have someone go, oh, I'll give you nine million dollars, and that's a huge amount of money. That's a life changing amount of money. So I can understand the desire to be like, okay, how can I get that money? Right. But the thought that you could put someone who was your your best best friend, friend, their life, yeah, for that. Yeah. In such a horrific way. Yeah. And to be comfortable talking to other people about doing mm-hmm. it. Like yeah, to find a group of friends. There's something wrong there. Yeah. And um, I think that shows her naivete as well, that she would think she happened to come across a millionaire, that mm. she would actually get that money. Yeah. That she wasn't being duped, that she Living didn't. in La La Land. Yeah, that she didn't go out of her way to, to somehow confirm that, even at 18, to say, you know, somehow can we verify who you are if you're really into that? Not that you should be taking money to kill people, but it makes me wonder about what she's dealing with in her mind. Exactly. I'd be interested to see what a psychologist can pull out of there. So it's awful because, you know, Denali is a victim of, of Darren, but she's also the one that killed her best friend. And then she victimized these other kids by getting them involved. But, he's the one that pulled the trigger and they're the ones that provided the thing. So it was a group effort. It's, here. it's a, it's an interesting, you can place as much victimization on, on someone as it's like domino them being effect. a predator. Yeah. yeah. They're all victims in some way. I, yeah. I would imagine. Speaking of, thank you for being open to changing your terminology. I always am. I have, this is a, a big deal for me as you know. So I thought it was a good time to talk about it a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I had said, Uh, earlier in the episode I had said child pornography and you had stopped me which was great because even as I was writing it yesterday I was like oh why do we call it that because weird yeah for me 
I the idea of that being lumped in with pornography. It's like pornography is adult entertainment. It is, and then pornography the term the term actually means consensual sexual acts mm. that are recorded and mm-hmm. distributed. It implies consent, and we right. know children can't consent. Yeah, so if it's in the word, it's like no. So there's like a movement to change how we talk about it, and you can go on interpool.int, and you can actually look up terminology and what's appropriate. Oh, that's great. And it's really important with with child victims because the abusers are the ones saying kitty porn and child porn. So right. the more that other people are perpetuating it, it causes a problem. So I have a couple of terms so child pornography is called child sexual abuse. So you could say images or videos of. Um, child yeah, I, ch- I chose recorded. Recorded, recorded right. Acts. Child sex tourism is often a, um, a term people use, and it's actually sexual exploitation of children in the context of travel and tourism. So they're very specific about the words being used. So I, I would invite everyone to take a look at the Crimes Against Children section of Interpol and familiarize yourself with that terminology because, it. I mean, it's out there. Obviously, right. we need to talk about it because uh, it's such a problem, but talking about it appropriately is just Well, it's important to have the meaning because it's like, yeah, if pornography includes consent, then it cannot be that. There's no way. So let's call it what it is, which is abuse. It's kind of like I was talking yesterday about the difference of violence against women and violence perpetrated by men, and then it needs to be referred to as that because that's what's happening. So no, I always appreciate that Mm -hmm. because then that's more empowering. Someone can say, I was a victim of child sex abuse, which yep. is much different than just like, oh, there was child pornography. And plus, I think there's an element of um, maybe being numb to that because we it hear is. about pornography it's in every to way. Say it, it's common. And this, like I said, it's only in the past couple of years that people are really trying hard yeah. um, to change the terminology. But it's too easy to dismiss when you use kitty porn as a sweet way to oh, call something yeah. totally nasty. Um, also, child prostitution isn't correct either. It's exploitation of children for prostitution. So there are lots of terminology changes, but it's, yeah, it's something that really, really bothers me, especially in the true crime community. Like, we should be... Um, we should be the ones leading Making the an effort and mm-hmm. using the right terminology. So yeah. I appreciate us stopping to talk yeah, about absolutely. that. absolutely. And that's interesting, too, with that last one, because then you you know we're, we're always making the effort to not say prostitute we're saying sex worker but again knowing what everything means obviously that is for the purpose of prostitution yes so, pro- so prostitution like is the term mm-hmm. it, there's no prostitute it's right. a sex worker but it's important because when you're reading legal documents you're going to see the appropriate terminology right. and they legally cannot talk about things like child pornography right. that's not that's not a thing Well, thank you for educating all of us. It's always appreciated. (laughs) Get to them bloopers, Josh. old whipped cream last night. Ew, what? Why? I didn't know it was old. How old was it? Was it still tasty? It was real old. Mm. Oof. Whipped cream. Holds up visually. <laughs> the end. <laughs> that's, the, that's their new ad of the year. <laughs> you got five-year-old whipped cream. It's still gonna look good. Looks good it's even when it It's not gonna taste good. <laughs>
Micro Wabe. <laughs> Sometimes there are more. Oh, I tried a new word today and it's a big one. <laughs> Iniquitous. I'm sorry. That was so funny. We need to make <laughs> oh you a God. t-shirt. I decided to try a new word today <laughs> and it's a doozy. <laughs> I need help. <laughs> Excuse me. The group stopped at Chujiak to view the 200-foot Thunderbird. Damn. <laughs> That's the word you get. Thunderbird. <laughs> Once a trial, or I would guess a plea deal. Plea deal. Plea deal. It's from the style. <laughs> and those named are innocent until proven guilty. <laughs> can you can you cut that together? <laughs> <laughs> Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs>